Section 7 of The Reign of Queen Anne, Volume 2 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 27 Europe Reconstructed on Paper. The conferences to arrange the terms of peace opened at Utrecht on January 29, 1712. There was much difficulty found by the English government in prevailing on their allies to enter into the conferences, and the new German emperor held obstinately out for a long time against any proposals for a peaceful settlement. Charles, the new emperor, on behalf of whom, as claimant to the Spanish throne, the allies had begun the war, was for holding out to the bitter end and fighting the French as long as the fight could be kept up. Since his accession to the imperial throne, he had ceased to be a candidate for the crown of Spain. But he seems to have thought that he was badly treated by his allies when they began to enter in negotiations without him, and in point of fact he did endeavor for a while to maintain the war on his own account and out of his own resources. He soon found, however, that the task was beyond his strength and the fact that those who had been his allies were already coming to terms with France made his efforts seem hopeless even to himself. Charles made a peace of his own with the King of France, but the whole story may now be told as one historical narrative, and the event which the world remembers is the settlement come to at Utrecht, and not the separate, or as it might be called collateral arrangement agreed to, between the King of France and the German Emperor. The conferences at Utrecht went to work composedly and complacently to reconstruct the scheme of the European continent. In those days, a conference of diplomatists representing sovereign states assembled to consider the terms of peace after a long war was not likely to trouble itself much with the interests and sentiments of the various populations concerned in the arrangement. The business with which diplomatists had to occupy themselves was only the adjustment of some terms of compromise which the sovereigns who were represented in the council chamber could be prevailed upon to accept. It was to be a give-and-take work altogether so far as these sovereigns were concerned, and if they could see their way to an agreement, it did not enter into the minds of diplomatists that anybody else could have right or inclination or opportunity to interfere. The modern doctrine of nationalities had not yet come to be a recognized force in political affairs. Much of the history of Europe since the Middle Ages is recorded distinctly enough in the annals of these various conferences, congresses, and other such settlements. It is not to be understood that the congresses and conferences really settled anything in a true and lasting sense. As diplomacy then conducted its business, there was no genuine basis sought for such a settlement, nor did the diplomatists even suspect that such a basis could be found. The story of the successive congresses and conferences becomes a record of European history because it shows how step by step or blunder after blunder the statesmen of Europe came nearer and nearer to the only true and real conditions by virtue of which a lasting peace could be obtained. The conferences at Utrecht had to deal with the affairs of England, 
France, Germany, Holland, Spain, and Portugal, and many other states, directly and immediately, and indirectly with the affairs of other states which were not represented in the diplomatic council chamber. But there does not seem the slightest reason to suppose that the diplomatists at Utrecht ever thought of asking themselves whether this or that proposed arrangement would be likely to obtain any hold over the populations of the states to which it was to apply. There was, for instance, no other idea with regard to Italy than the idea that it was a country to be divided up amongst various native or foreign rulers, a part given to reward this one, and a part given to buy over or to buy off that other. It was no more thought likely that the populations of these various allotments might raise any objection to the new arrangements than it would be thought likely now that the cattle and sheep on a farm about to be sold would have any reason or inclination to object to the occupancy of the new purchaser. The family compacts, the private arrangements between certain reigning families on the European continent, which followed and in a certain sense came out of the Utrecht settlement, were not in themselves more thoroughly narrow-minded and worthless than the arrangements seriously discussed and solemnly ratified by the negotiators who came to represent England, France, Germany, and the other states concerned in those councils which gave another attribute of celebrity to the old Dutch city. The Congress of Vienna seems to us now a very antiquated and ineffective piece of machinery, but an entirely new stage of political development had been accomplished in Europe between its time and that of the Utrecht conferences. At the Congress of Vienna, evidence had been given that at least there were statesmen who saw that the interests and the wishes of populations would have to be considered thenceforward, as well as the inclinations and the interests of sovereign rulers. No such idea had made its way into the mind of European diplomacy at the time of the Utrecht sittings. The French Revolution intervened between the two eras of diplomacy and although the Congress of Vienna was called together to reconstruct Europe after what seemed to be the collapse of the revolution, yet the main principles which that revolution had asserted found at least some recognition in the minds of diplomatists whose business it was to take part in the work of reconstitution. The conferences at Utrecht had no occasion to trouble themselves about the sovereignty of peoples, or the right of nations to choose their own rulers, or the difficulties of founding any lasting system of government in a country which had never been allowed an opportunity of taking any part in the choice or in the working of its constitution. The conferences dragged on for a long time. Much of the delay was caused by the difficulty of inducing some of the Allies to enter cordially into any plan of settlement, and even in the case of those who did enter into such a plan, the difficulty of prevailing upon them to recognize any but their own interests. The general result was that what may be described as a series of separate arrangements was entered into between France on the one side and the states of the late alliance on the other. The treaty was finally signed at the Congress on April 11, 1713, 
by the representatives of Great Britain and her allies, except the Emperor, and by the representatives of the King of France. Perhaps the most conspicuous feature of the treaty was that part of it which established the grandson of King Louis on the throne of Spain with the title of Philip V. The war had been undertaken by Great Britain and her allies to prevent a prince of the House of Bourbon from becoming King of Spain. And now the Treaty of Utrecht declared that the prince of the House of Bourbon was to be King of Spain. Thus far the victory distinctly remained with France and Louis the Fourteenth. England, however, had her compensating advantages. France fully acknowledged the order of English sovereignty established by the Act of Succession. This article of the treaty distinctly proclaimed the acknowledgment by France of the succession of the most serene princess Sophia and her heirs in the Protestant line of Hanover. The words of the treaty were explicit and almost effusive on this point. His Most Christian Majesty recognized sincerely and solemnly the said succession to the Kingdom of Great Britain and pledged to this recognition his faith and his word as a king as well for himself as for his heirs and successors. But King Louis had to go still farther in his accommodation with England. He promised for himself and his heirs and successors that every care should be taken to prevent the person who, during the lifetime of King James II, had taken the title of Prince of Wales, and on the death of King James, had taken the title of King of Great Britain, and who had more lately gone voluntarily out of France to live elsewhere, from ever returning into any of the provinces of that kingdom at any possible time or under any possible pretext. King Louis must have felt that there was some humiliation in all this part of the agreement to set off against the triumph accorded to him by that other part which acknowledged his grandson as King of Spain. The delicate diplomatic phraseology which described the Stuart claimant as having voluntarily taken himself out of France could not have much power to deceive even Frenchmen as to the pressure which had been brought to bear upon their sovereign to hasten his honored guest's departure. King Louis had recognized the descendant of the Stuarts as King of England in the most solemn and ostentatious form. He had allowed the exiled prince to keep up a royal court in France, and it was only after years of warfare and when Marlborough's forward movements seemed destined to threaten Paris itself that King Louis found it necessary to suggest to the exiled Stuart the expediency of his voluntarily seeking a home out of France. The treaty contained a stipulation that the sovereignty of France and of Spain should never be united in the same person. Such a stipulation must have seemed even to Harley and Bolingbroke absolutely necessary in order to make the treaty acceptable to the people of England, who had made such sacrifices for the proclaimed purpose of preventing France from annexing Spain to her dominions. But this clause in the treaty had very little substantial value in itself. A Bourbon prince was now set upon the throne of Spain, and it is quite easy to understand 
that before many generations had passed, a descendant of that prince might, in the natural order of things, succeed to the inheritance of the throne of France. If the French people and the Spanish people were satisfied, it does not seem very likely that a new generation of Englishmen or of Austrians or of Dutchmen would have combined to undertake another tremendous war for the settlement or unsettlement of a foreign succession. Some such condition had to be made in order to satisfy political and diplomatic exigencies, and Louis probably found little difficulty in accepting an agreement which was not likely to interfere with the European conditions of his time. The territories which bore the name of Hudson's Bay and had been occupied by the French were to be restored to England, with the stipulation that all French subjects who had settled there were to be permitted to leave the territory and take with them whatever property they desired to remove. Nova Scotia, St. Christopher, and the neighboring regions outside the border of Canada were yielded to England, and by this means the sovereign of Great Britain obtained undisputed right over a vast extent of territory. The treaty also contained a stipulation that the French occupants of Canada should not interfere with or endeavor to expel or molest in any way those tribes of Indians known as the Five Nations, who were understood to have attached themselves to the friendly protection of England, or any other tribes that should in future seek shelter under the strength of an alliance with their English neighbors. The French reserved the right to fish within certain limits along the shores of the Hudson's Bay and Nova Scotia territory. France agreed to demolish the fortifications and to fill up the harbor of Dunkirk, which the English government at that time appeared to have looked upon as a standing menace to British trading interests. This particular stipulation was not carried out, and the English statesmen would seem before long to have forgotten all about it. England was to retain possession of Gibraltar and Menorca, and Menorca was fought for, taken, and retaken several times in succeeding years, and was finally given up to Spain at the Peace of Amiens in 1802. Gibraltar, it need hardly be said, is still under the flag of England, and although during a later reign there was a certain inclination on the part of the English sovereign to restore the rock and the fortress to Spain, that inclination soon passed over, and nothing seems farther from the mind of English statesmanship and the English people today than any thought of handing back to Spain that Mediterranean stronghold which was so suddenly and surprisingly won for Queen Anne during the War of the Spanish Succession. Spain can hardly be said to have gained anything by the Treaty of Utrecht, while she lost all her possessions in Italy and in the Netherlands. Prussia gained by the treaty the formal acknowledgment of her position as a kingdom, and from that time she may be said to have set up as a rival to Austria for ascendancy over the Germanic states. Italy was parceled out to satisfy the claims and purchase the compromise of princes who had taken a part in the war. Milan and the Kingdom of Naples were given to Austria, and Sicily was handed over to the Duke of Savoy. The King of Sicily found means some five years later to exchange his island with Spain for Sardinia, 
exchanges of territory were also made in those days without much inquiry as to the inclinations of the inhabitants. The sovereign, who had been the Duke of Savoy before the Treaty of Utrecht, thus became the King of Sardinia, and his successors maintained that kingdom down to the days within the recollection of living men, when the kings of Sardinia developed into kings of Italy. The elector of Bavaria, who had taken sides with France, was restored to his dominions, and the elector of Hanover was recognized in his rights as a ruling prince. The region known as the territory of Orange passed over by process of peaceful exchange into the ownership of France. On the death of William III, the territory of Orange went by inheritance to the childless king's sister, who had married the prince now recognized as the first king of Prussia. This little territory was entirely surrounded by France, and it seemed much more convenient to the great states concerned in the Treaty of Utrecht that it should be formally consigned to the sovereignty of King Louis. There is something curiously interesting in the history of this principality, so completely a part of France, and now so completely identified with France in the minds of the numberless travelers from all parts of the world who visit the picturesque regions in the neighborhood of Avignon. The principality had come by inheritance to one of the Nassau family, and through him gave a title to the successive heirs of that line. Then by chance, which we have mentioned, the principality passed over to a Prussian owner. The exchange which was made by the Treaty of Utrecht was the most advantageous for all the states concerned in the engagement, and it now remains only one of the curiosities of history that an internal part of French territory should at one time have been owned by the princes of Nassau, have given a descriptive name to William III of England, and have afterwards become the inheritance of a king of Prussia. One of the arrangements which belonged to the Treaty of Utrecht has a peculiar significance for English readers and recalls some entirely painful and humiliating recollections. Nothing could set off in more startling contrast the difference between some of the conditions of civilization at the time of Queen Anne's rule and those which prevail in England and almost everywhere else in our own days, than the agreement which was entered into at Utrecht between Great Britain and Spain, the agreement which bore as its title the Spanish word Asiento. History has kept up the name of this memorable and disreputable agreement to the present hour. The Asiento was simply an agreement or assent between England and Spain that England should have the privilege or the monopoly of supplying Negro slaves to the Spanish colonies on the western side of the Atlantic. This was regarded at the time by the English statesmen as a privilege England was well entitled to ask and to receive, and concerning which there could be no possible question of honor, decency, or morality. It was regarded as the most natural thing in the world that a country like England, which had large merchant fleets, should secure for herself a good trade in the capture and sale of Negro slaves, and a monopoly in the traffic with any state which had need of such cargoes, and was not so well provided with the means of obtaining the desired livestock. 
The Spanish colonists on American soil were greatly in need of cheap labor to carry on their work for them, and the cheapest and best labor, according to the views of the time, was to be found in Negroes captured on African soil and carried off to the country where their daily toil could be made most useful to their owners. That a Negro should be captured and sold into perpetual slavery, a slavery for himself and his children, seemed to the civilized world in the days of Queen Anne and down to a much later time about as natural and unobjectionable a proceeding as the capture and sale of wild cattle. Some of the most enlightened statesmen of England and France, at the time when the Treaty of Utrecht was made, must have been as humane according to their own code of humanity and standard of education as any of those who in a later age applauded the thrilling words of Broome when he denounced the wild and guilty fantasy that man can have property in man. But even among professed teachers of religion in the days of Queen Anne, the doctrines of Christianity had not yet struck their roots so deeply down in the human heart as to make the recognition of man's right to an inheritance of freedom a commonly accepted principle of conscience. The conditions of the Asiento were at first embodied in a treaty which had been in operation between France and Spain, but at the Peace of Utrecht it was arranged that England should have the benefit of the agreement. England was to have by this stipulation the privilege of importing 4,800 Negro slaves into the Spanish colonies of America within 30 years. The terms of the contract, which were the same as those embodied in the agreement between France and Spain, set forth precisely the kind of Negro slave to be imported into the Spanish colonies, prescribed that slaves of both sexes were to be imported, defined the limits of age within which the living property was to be captured and sold, and in every possible way made the terms of the bargain quite clear. The Asiento gave a new and vigorous impulse to the slave trade, and it has bequeathed to England the melancholy fame of having been the principal instrument in setting up the system of slavery throughout the North American colonies. It may be added that this ill-omened contract had, as one of its indirect consequences, the effect of helping to create and float the South Sea Company, or rather that strange development of the South Sea Company which was known as the South Sea Bubble, and was the cause of a tremendous commercial convulsion in the succeeding reign. The Dutch obtained, as the result of the part they had taken in the war, a certain rectification of their frontier lines, and the possession of some towns and fortresses the ownership of which appeared to confer on them a guarantee against French encroachment in the future. This was not perhaps very much of a gain to Holland, after all the risks she had undergone and the sacrifices she had been compelled to make. It does not even seem quite clear that the new arrangement would have been much of a security to Holland, if in the course of time any of her powerful neighbors had thought it advisable to undertake an invasion of her territory. But there was nothing else to be done when the negotiations for peace were on the way to settlement, for it was certain that England would not undertake further risks and make fresh sacrifices for the sake of satisfying her Dutch ally. The Dutch had to be content with what they could get, and the result of their alliance with two of the great European powers had probably, though indirectly, 
some influence in the promotion of Holland's subsequent prosperity. The Dutch seem to have learned the lesson by the war that a small state is not likely to gain much benefit from a military alliance with great neighbors, and had therefore better keep as far as possible out of all kind of warlike adventure. Since the Peace of Utrecht, Holland has for the most part confined herself to looking after her own interests, and has become a peaceful, educated, and prosperous state. Perhaps it may well be asserted that the fighting capacity which the Dutch had shown, as well in the War of the Succession as in their own great struggle for independence, would be likely to discourage even very powerful neighbors from a policy of adventurous invasion and would prove a better security for the small state than the possession of the fortress towns or the rectification of the frontier. English statesmanship underwent severe and just reproach for one part of its policy in the settlement of the treaty. This was the part which is commonly and very fairly described as the abandonment of the Catalans. The Catalans, the population inhabiting certain regions of Catalonia, had cordially adopted the cause represented by the Archduke Charles. They were indeed the only Spanish population who had actively demonstrated their sympathy with that cause and had sacrificed brave lives in its support. While the negotiations for peace were still going on, the Catalans were in arms on the battlefield and were naturally counting on the support of the allies who had set up the Archduke Charles as the sovereign of Spain. It might well have been assumed that when the arrangements for peace began to take definite shape, the English statesmen would insist on enforcing some stipulation for the immunity and protection of the brave Spaniards who had fought side by side with them, and who without their help must now be left to the mercy of Spain's Bourbon sovereign. There was still a British force in Spain, while the arrangements for peace were drawing toward a close, and the Catalans must have expected that some measures would be taken by England to secure them against being treated as mere rebels by the incoming ruler of Spain. The English statesmen, however, did nothing of the kind, but left the Catalans without any pledge or guarantee whatever to the mercy of their new ruler. We may anticipate the progress of history for a little in order to say that after the Treaty of Utrecht had become an accomplished fact, the desertion of the Catalans was made a subject of discussion in the House of Lords. Lord Wharton and Lord Sunderland raised the question there and contended that the crown of Great Britain, having drawn in the Catalans to declare for the House of Austria and engaged to support them, those engagements ought to have been made good by some arrangement in the treaty securing the Catalans against any harm. The defense of the government was undertaken by Bolingbroke, who assured the House that the Queen had used all her endeavors to secure for the Catalans the enjoyment of their ancient liberties and privileges. But he contended that the engagements into which the Queen had entered could hold for no longer a time than while the Archduke Charles was still in Spain, and that as the Archduke, who had since risen to the imperial dignity, had himself taken no steps to maintain the rights of the Catalans, the Queen was not in a position to do anything more than make use of her good offices on their behalf. 
such a defense as this could hardly have imposed upon anyone who took the slightest interest in the safety of the Catalans, or who had any just perception of the degree to which the honor of England was involved in their defense. The House of Lords presented an address to the Queen on the subject, and the Queen assured them in reply that at the time she concluded her peace with Spain, she resolved to continue her interpositions upon every occasion for obtaining these liberties and to prevent, if possible, the misfortunes to which that people were exposed by the conduct of those more nearly concerned to help them. The further interpositions, if any such ever were made, do not seem to have been pressed forward in a manner likely to bring about the results which the Queen declared she had in mind. The Catalans, in fact, were left to their fate, and it is recorded in history that the Queen's promise of protection was hung on the high altar of the Cathedral of Barcelona as a solemn protest against the worthlessness of the engagement into which England had professed to enter on behalf of the Catalan population. When the new King of Spain assumed his throne, the Catalans were regarded by him as rebels in arms against his authority. They were called upon to surrender, but they utterly refused to yield and made up their minds to resist so long as resistance should be possible. They defended Barcelona with splendid bravery and might have defended it effectively if the new king had had none but his own forces with which to subdue his rebels. The king, however, was able to obtain the help of French troops under the command of Marshal Berwick, and although the Catalans held out for a long time, yet the city was stormed and taken in the end, and no interposition on England's part took place to prevent this grim and tragic settlement of the Catalan question. We are now anticipating by a little the course of history, for the resistance of the Catalans outlasted the reign of Queen Anne, but it is as well to complete at once this melancholy chapter in the records of the war. The peace negotiations included an arrangement made for a commercial treaty between England and France. The whole of the Utrecht negotiations were, to a great extent, the work of Bolingbroke's inspiration, and the commercial treaty with France was almost exclusively his project. The fame of Bolingbroke is not usually associated with the business of commerce, and it does not appear that at any previous part of his life the great orator, writer, and man of pleasure had given any particular attention to the study of commercial questions or of political economy. But he suddenly became filled with a desire to establish an improved system of international relations between England and France in their commercial dealings, and he undoubtedly anticipated that policy of free trade which no English government ever thoroughly adopted until Sir Robert Peel had become a great prime minister and a convert to free trade principles. The main purpose of Bolingbroke's treaty was to declare that for the future the trade and commerce of England and France were to be placed on a footing of equality as regarded customs and tariffs, and that each nation was to be dealt with by the other on the same terms as those accorded by each to the foreign state, up to that time most highly favored. In other words, the lowest duty which the financial administration of either country found it necessary to impose on imports coming from any foreign state was to be applied to English goods entering France 
and French goods entering England. Bolingbroke's ideas on the subject of free trade were entirely in advance of the economic doctrines and the views on trade interest which prevailed at his time, and the announcement that such a commercial treaty had been made at Utrecht and ratified by the Queen's government created positive consternation among the commercial and trading classes in England. An outcry was raised that the very existence of English manufacture was threatened by the adoption of a policy which would throw the kingdom open to the competition of all its manufacturing rivals in France. Bishop Burnet describes the sensation which was created among the trading classes by the provisions in the treaty for removing the prohibitions and high duties imposed at that time on the productions of France. The traders in the city of London and those in all the other parts of England were alarmed, he says, with the great prejudice this would bring on the whole nation. The Turkey Company, those that traded to Portugal and Italy, and all who were concerned in the woolen and silk manufactures, appeared before both houses and set forth the great mischief that a commerce with France on the foot of the treaty would bring upon the nation, while none appeared on the other side to answer their arguments or to set forth the advantage of such a commerce. Burnet regards it as evident that none of the trading bodies had ever been consulted on the subject, while he adds that the commissioners for trade and plantations had had the project laid before them by the orders of the government, and they were invited to make their remarks on it. Then Bishop Burnet proceeds to discourse on what was one of the minor political scandals of the day, the manner in which the project had been brought under the notice of Bolingbroke and adopted by him as his own. Burnet's version of the story is that Arthur Moore, who had risen up from being a footman without any education to be a great dealer in trade and was the person of that board in whom the Lord Treasurer confided most, moved that they might first read it every one apart and then debate it, and he desired to have the first perusal, so he took it away and never brought it back to them, but gave it to the Lord Bolingbroke, who carried it to Paris, and there it was settled. Arthur Moore was a man whose position and dealings created much talk at that time and who was commonly accredited with having been the instructor of Bolingbroke in all that he knew about questions of trade and commerce. It is quite true, as Bishop Burnet tells us, that Arthur Moore, whose name is spelt by some writers as Moore, with two O's, was originally a footman and had little or no education to start with but he appears to have been a man of great ability and a special capacity for making use of any opportunities of acquiring knowledge or exerting influence which might come in his way. The very fact that he was able to become the teacher and the guide of Bolingbroke, even on one great question of public policy, is proof enough that he must have had intelligence and force of character quite out of the common order. There appears to be a general agreement among writers who have commented on the character of Arthur Moore, that he was sordid and grasping by nature, and that he would have recoiled from no undertaking which promised to bring him pecuniary advantage. On subjects of trade and commerce, he became, for a time, Bolingbroke's constant adviser. Mr. McKnight, in his Life of Bolingbroke, says it was under Moore's great encouragement that Bolingbroke sent out the expedition to Canada 
and it was Moore who received the order on the treasury for the twenty-six thousand pounds, of which twenty thousand mysteriously disappeared into the pockets of Lady Masham. Moore was certainly a better authority on questions of international trade than on Canadian expeditions, and the fact that he succeeded in impressing Bolingbroke with a faith in his advanced views as to political economy is certainly not to Bolingbroke's discredit. Under Moore's influence, Bolingbroke put the Treaty of Commerce with France into shape and made it a part of the conditions settled by the Treaty of Utrecht. The commercial treaty had, however, to obtain the sanction of Parliament in England. Queen Anne retained the sovereign authority, as it was then understood, to enter into a treaty of peace of her own accord. But she did not claim any such arbitrary power over the arrangements for a treaty of commerce. The government succeeded so far that the House of Commons was induced by a large majority to pass the vote, giving leave for the bringing in of the bill which embodied the articles of the treaty. But after this, the opposition of all the trading interests concerned became too strong for the supporters of the measure. The Whig party was then supposed to be farther advanced in ideas of commercial freedom than the slow and steady Tory party, but most of the Whigs nevertheless opposed the bill and probably would have been ready to do so in any case if only because it was an important ministerial measure. Had Bolingbroke been still in the House of Commons, he might have done something by his persuasive eloquence, his gift of argument, and his political tact, to obtain new supporters for his bill. But since his elevation to the House of Lords, there was no one in the representative chamber who could do the work which he might have done. Members of the House of Commons knew that a general election was near at hand, and few of them would have liked to face such an ordeal if their votes in the existing Parliament had turned all the manufacturing and trading classes against them. At one important stage in the progress of the measure, the government were defeated by 194 votes against 185. The majority was small, but it was convincing. Since the first reading of the bill, the feeling of the House had been growing steadily against the measure, and it was felt by the government that the longer the debate went on, the greater would be the strength of the opposition. The bill was therefore abandoned, and there was an end of the commercial treaty. Harley was understood to have had no great interest in the measure, and most assuredly he was not the man to appreciate advanced ideas on questions of international trade and commerce. The outcry of the trading interests was that such a treaty would simply impoverish the Englishman in order to enrich the Frenchman, and probably such a description of Bolingbroke's policy would have harmonized well enough with Harley's views on the general subject of international trade. Bolingbroke took the loss of his measure deeply to heart. In his letters to Pryor and others of his friends, he deplored the action of the House of Commons, and through the whole remainder of his career, he seems never to have lost his keen sense of disappointment. The familiar French proverb, which describes the man as unhappy, who is in advance of his age, might in this instance at least have applied to Bolingbroke. Except for this one part of the arrangements, the Treaty of Utrecht may be said to have passed into realization in all its important propositions. It was signed on the 11th of April, 1713, by the diplomatic representatives of England and France, 
and of all the other allies except the German emperor. There is not on the whole much serious difference of opinion in history as to the practical wisdom of the part which was played by English statesmanship in the making of the treaty. The motives of the English statesmen who carried the measure to success may well be questioned, and the whole policy which set the war going may easily be assailed and condemned by those who regard above all things the interests of the British populations. But when we ask ourselves directly and simply whether after so many years of war the English statesmen could do anything better than accept a peace even on such terms, we shall find ourselves compelled to admit that nothing could have been gained for British interests by a further prolongation of the struggle. The true interests of the people of these countries had never been concerned in the war, and every year of the war's continuance only involved them in new and unmeaning sacrifices. The Treaty of Utrecht brings with it no glory to the English statesmen by whom it was arranged and concluded, but the verdict of history must be that any reasonable terms of peace were better than the further prolongation of such a war. The illustrious composer Handel, who was then settled in England, was invited by Queen Anne to compose a Te Deum and a Jubilate in celebration of the peace, and he complied with the request and received from the Queen a liberal pension as to his reward. To most Englishmen, the music of Handel, set to such a theme, must have seemed a fitting and noble glorification, but there must have been some Englishmen, too, in whose ears it sounded like a dirge. The one great fact was that the war of the Spanish succession had come to an end. End of Section 7